need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line from the dual window, it's Andy Greenwald. That works on so many levels because you're talking about Warner Brothers' radical new plan that will that has completely, in one day, upended everything we thought about the movie industry. But also, Chris, I don't know if our listeners know this, but there's a pandemic going on. And so we're recording on Zoom and there are two windows. That's right. That's a dual window. I can see you I and I can it. see me. Just, uh, it's, uh, there are levels to this. We also have one of my favorite interviews of the year today. Andy and I talked to Scott Frank, the co-creator, the writer, the director of Queen's Gambit. Second time Scott came back, uh, well, he came back for the first time. It's just his second appearance on the show after he came by and talked to us about Godless. Scott was awesome. He talked a lot about Queen's Gambit. He also talked a lot about what he's got coming up, which I think I saw Greenwald's eye like slightly fall out of his head. He got mm-hmm. it back up in there so that we could do this. So today, uh, HBO and Warner Brothers seismic new changes to the entertainment industry industry on HBO Max and then Scott Frank. So let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. What's up, man? How are you? I'm great. We're going to talk the movie info upheaval, Warner Brothers. But I yes. do want to say, we will talk about the fourth episode of Industry today. We're sort of sticking to the linear plan at the moment, although you may have uh, may have done a couple extra lines, as they would say on Industry. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll discuss how we'll cover it going forward. But for people who haven't watched it yet, you're fools, all of you. You need to be watching the show. But I wanted to begin by letting everybody know that people who had watched the fourth episode, this is not a spoiler to say that the main character, Harper, has a bit of a night, mm-hmm. big night in it. And, and into the morning, yes. And yeah. then has like one of the most intense, super hungover, no sleep work days I've ever seen on film. Yeah. And I wanted to let you know, Chris, as we get into our podcast, that I know how she feels. I can relate. Because last night, while watching Industry... I had a small glass of Chenin Blanc after 9 p.m. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like an entire multinational bank building has fallen on me. Because I've been, that's what getting older does. I've been having that problem. So I've been drinking these things called um, palpable apathy. Do you ever hear these? No, this sounds like it's something Alice would find on the way to Wonderland. So it's a cocktail I've been making that is uh, one part vermouth, one part rye. And one part Braulio, which is a uh, a northern Italian Amaro, like an alpine spirit. 
And it has like just like really notes of pine in there. I just feel like I'm on Her Majesty's Secret Service when I'm when I'm drinking it. But let me tell you something. I yeah. don't know if it is contributing to sound nights of sleep. No, no, no. It, you can't do it anymore. You can't do it anymore. Because maybe young people have it figured out because drinking, full stop, I think usually goes hand in hand with not sleeping or or making a whole night of it as Harper sure. does in industry. Yeah. We're getting a little too cute here, just like you are with your fucking mixology. And trying to do both. You can enjoy a bit of a bevy and also a solid eight. You know what I mean? It's and not happen. No. No. Um, all right. So let's let's do this massive news. I guess my first question is let me well, I'll I'll read everybody in case they don't know already. Here's the here's the background, right? So deadline.com, a site that I still read despite Nikki Fink's absence from it, uh, reports, as as did many people. The uh, Burbank-based Warner Brothers is putting its entire 2021 theatrical slate on HBO Max for the film's respective first month of release concurrent with a global cinema release. So following the one-month HBO Max access period domestically, each film will leave the platform but continue theatrically in the U.S. and international territories with all customary distribution windows applying to the title. You may be asking yourself, what does that mean? What movies will I be seeing on HBO Max next year? Here is a list. Denzel Washington's The Little Things, uh, Tom and Jerry, Godzilla vs. King Kong, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mortal Kombat, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Conjuring Movie. When will in you the, start saying the movies that I will be seeing on HBO Max next year? In the Heights. Okay. Will you be watching Space Jam A New Legacy? Uh, only if you make me for the podcast. The Suicide Squad, James Gunn's uh, Suicide Squad sequel, uh, Malignant, of course, Dune, which is very important to us. Of course, The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel that we are very interested in, and also, and I can't honestly believe that I'm reading these words, The Matrix 4. So Mm -hmm. what this essentially means is that on the day that those movies would be released in theaters, for one month, you will be able to watch The Matrix 4 at home on HBO Max. This is being treated appropriately, I think, as uh, groundbreaking, industry-changing, paradigm-shifting news. Because these movies, untold, I would say hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars put into these films in the making of these movies, all of that capital investment will be available to people to just watch at home now. Um, What's your first reaction to this news? This was inevitable. Uh, I think the pandemic obviously sped it up exponentially so. And I think for, we should also say for much more nuanced and dare I say, educated view into all this, check out our friend Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins' podcast, The Big Picture. This is something that they've been very animated by and tracking, and I'm sure they'll have a podcast up today to talk in more depth yeah, about Yeah, they do. But even you know, from our vantage point, this is something we've been aware of. There is so much consolidation that has been happening in the media industry, and it was sped up um, exponentially this year. And one way to think about this now for all these companies is they are all in some ways trying to become like Apple with like full end-to-end user experiences. And for as much as people talk about the the beauty and majesty of movie theaters and even cynical me, I mean, I, I agree with that. I would rather see, of those movies you listed, I would rather see Dune in a movie theater. You know, I, I, I am not pretending otherwise. But the movie theater chains, and they're in a great deal of financial peril at the moment, right? are partners with the studios. The studios do not own them. They don't control them. They're in a partnership relationship with them. And similarly, you know, from a TV perspective, when a universal show makes its way into Netflix, they're 
They're partners in something. The long-term goal for these major media companies is to become everything, to become the product, and to feed themselves, essentially, and lock you into their system. Right. And that was long seen as inevitable, but there were obviously both there were creative bumps in that road because people wanted their movies to be seen in theaters or they wanted to get the best possible deal for themselves and their show in the open market. But there were also internal business roadblocks to that. You know, something that, without getting into detail, like that's something I'm familiar with even from my own experience uh, with a show made for a studio for a network, all of which are owned by one company, um, but had to negotiate with each other as if they were completely unrelated. All that church and state stuff is being swept away with the biggest broom imaginable this year. Even if you if you saw this big story in the trades, chances are you may have not been paying attention to how every week prior to this, major reorg in Disney's TV plan, major reorg in Universal's TV plan. All of this, I mean, when you get past the names and the hirings and firings, are all towards the same goal of like full end-to-end ownership of product and consumer delivery. So this was going to happen. But... How do we feel about it? So my follow-up question, question is: My follow-up question is: Are you surprised at the scope of the announcement? Yeah, because kind of. I think they were being so piecemeal, right? Everybody was kind of like, after Wonder Woman eighty four was announced that it was going to come out on HBO Max and in quote unquote in theaters, as you know, we enter into like some of the darkest days of of coronavirus. I think I I anticipated more releases going to streaming, but I don't think I really anticipated a studio saying it's all going there for the next year. And that's one thing that I I think I'm surprised at the commitment that HBO Max made. And I wonder whether or not they received, whether it was an uptick in subscriptions Mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, research told them, hey, people Mm -hmm. are pretty fired up about the Wonder Woman 84 news that they were like, let's announce this because that is the incentive to get people signed up now because they know that for the foreseeable future, if you pay this, this price per month, you're gonna get, you're gonna get this level of content, which honestly no other service can offer. No other. Yeah. This is not like, hey, we bought the Tom Hanks movie over to Apple. No disrespect to Tom Hanks or Apple or anything, but this is a significant announcement in terms of the kinds of movie. we're talking about. Suicide Squad and Doom are gonna be two of the biggest movies next year. I, I think that it was incredibly important for them to be first to make a type of announcement like this and to go big because one of the things that has been brought into a much harsher light because of the way this year has gone, is what is essentially a gridlock of expensive, or at least, I mean, anything that you're paying monthly for is expensive at this point, uh, streaming services. You know, the question, you can do fancy branding, you can buy reruns of the middle or whatever, but you still have to answer fundamentally why. Why do you need this? Why do people need to add this? And the major difference between HBO Max and Disney Plus, for example, is Disney, as we say every week when we talk about it, has the franchises and it has the the content library. I think Disney, this is something we also sometimes touch on in a different context, has a very different relationship with the consumer than sure. Warner Media, which is a kind of a cold There's name decades for something of that didn't baked really in, exist. De- baked-in consumer behavior for Disney. And and more explicitly, Disney, unlike a lot of its competitors, made an announcement, they didn't make an announcement, but they essentially made a massive cultural existential shift years ago in their film business where they said, we're only making movies that are events. That's what we do here. Whereas the other studios, whether it's Warner or Paramount or whatever, also flipped into a franchise IP mode. But every so often, well, around the holidays, we release these movies and maybe we'll coddle this one in our specialty division or whatever. Disney's whole business is massive world-shaking events. And you notice they're not saying that 
Eternals and the next Spider-Man movie are coming directly to Disney Plus. They may, but I would be very, very surprised because I think Disney has both the chips and the stature to be like, we can wait until they drop the Pfizer. We can wait a little bit and we can hold these movies as long as we need to because we still want to own that space because having an event in a movie theater around the world is kind of like having a cruise ship or having a theme park or all these other things that are core to their business that they also can't do right now. I don't know what the threat is to, you know, the the sort of existential threat is to theaters. You know, part of me... I think I spent most of the day thinking about this and thinking I am as excited to go back to a movie theater as I am to travel, you know, maybe not mm-hmm. the same amount, but I am, I, I cannot wait for that to be a regular part of my life again to what do you want to do today? It's Sunday afternoon. It's Wednesday night. It's date night. It's Friday night. Let's go out. Like, and the ritual of going to movies and dinners with friends and talking about the movie we just saw is just one of my favorite of my adult life. And I can't wait to do that again. And I don't think that, Nobody has ever, COVID aside, I just don't feel like that happens around streaming movies. Like the last time I think I had that experience at home was was back in the day with Thrones and like a really fun Sunday night lineup of HBO where you would have people come over and have a couple of beers and watch Thrones and Veep or something like that. So I, I don't necessarily think that theaters are going anywhere, but I was interested to see, A, how many people online seem to be interpreting this as a existential threat to theaters and B I checked myself because I was like there might be a lot of people out there who have no personal allegiance to the institution of movie theaters and this just this just works out just great for them yeah I think it's worth noting that you know what the best year for vinyl LP sales in America since the 70s was definitely in the last few years I mean I don't have that data but I remember reading that people love certain kinds of experiences they're not going to go away I don't think this is as big a threat to the kind of Alamo Drafthouse model, for example, of movie going that's caught on in recent years. The, or here in LA, there's the, the wonderful New Beverly, which is Quentin Tarantino's theater, where you know they have these great programs of classic films that you could definitely just press a button on your Apple remote and watch, but mm-hmm. instead you go and you see it in the theater with trailers and popcorn and friends. That's not going anywhere. Like People will still do that. But the relationship between the megaplex and mega movies from the mega studios is totally intertwined, right? Like you don't, those giant like Edwards airplane hangers off the highways in that I, <laughs> yeah. you know, that I yeah. in the suburbs or that I remember seeing like in Albuquerque or Utah or wherever, they don't need 25 theaters, really. They have 25 theaters so that 15 of them can play Black Panther on opening weekend, right? Like that's mm-hmm. why they exist. Yeah. So it's absolutely an existential threat to that business model. Um, but that business model was also having, you know, a completely, completely destructive One, of, one year. of my favorite traditions of going home for the holidays is going with my mom to the multiplex that's across the street from the Cherry Hill Mall in Southern New Jersey. Been there. And inevitably, it's like, you know, it's like a 25 theater thing and 19 or 24 of those theaters are playing Star Wars. And then like the one other movie is about like a dog who might be Jesus. (laughs) Oh, yes, that one. You know what I mean? Where it's like (laughs) raining on a day with dogs and it's like some Mandy Moore movie you've never heard of. But that is and it's produced by like a greeting card company and like a Bible sales distribution arm, you know, and and the dad of whomever, whether it's the kid, whether it's Jesus or whether it's the dog is played by Tim McGraw. That's right. A hundred percent. Those are fascinating (laughs) to me. Um, So 
it, it's, it is tricky. Like you don't want to get too high or too low to like one press release because everything is changing because of this. And it's just not necessarily changing like a light switch. But when we emerge blinking, you know, with multiple Moderna and Pfizer needle <laughs> pokes in our arms, a lot of what we do in, in terms of entertainment and culture will, will be different. What, what's odd to me, I guess, is this. Like when Netflix got into the movie business and for example, they paid for and, and, and distributed Roma, you know, one of the best movies mm-hmm. of the last few years, Alfonso Cuaron's just absolutely stunning and beautiful ode to his hometown and his childhood and movie making. Um, that movie you know, was I, not about a dog that might be Jesus, FYI, just in case anybody was confused. I, I saw it without subtitles and that runs contrary to my experience. There's a lot of dog droppings in the driveway. I That's remember. right. That's, That's what opening. I'm saying. So that, you don't think Jesus was telling us something? That time there were two, okay, in the sand? No. One set of paw prints. All right. My point being, I'm the asshole who's just like, yes, I will have this for free, but please, Vista Theater here in Los Angeles, take my money so I can see it in a theater as God and Alfonso and baby dog Jesus intended. Mm -hmm. What's odd is that that person, you know, the the, the New Yorker subscribing D-bag like myself, you picture doing that. Now the person who's like, no, 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 thank you, uh, um, Casey Bloys. I will spend my $20 to see the fucking Tom and Jerry movie at the Arclight as God intended. That's an interesting spin on who values what out of the theatrical experience. Um, what should I we don't do, know- we, we should do the, inep- the perfunctory, like, what does this mean for TV? Do you think it means anything for any of these? No, I mean, what it means for TV is just like, to, to continue having TV at the volume we've been having it, we need these companies to be successful. We need these streaming launches to be successful because they're, for the last few years, the bubble of good programming, which the bubble of programming that has entertained us and certainly fueled our podcast comes from their willingness to invest enormous amounts against potential losses in these things, brands they're trying to build. So what it means for TV is like if, if HBO Max suddenly has 100 million subscribers on June 1st of next year, it means that Casey Casey's going to drop many, many bags. Yeah. You know, like Kay, Casey's going to make it rain and on I, the and town I, I do, I and do there'll have be more TV shows. A, a, a lot of faith that he will continue to make stuff like Industry and make stuff like uh, I May Destroy You, Co-Pros or whatever. Like I, 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 I have faith that he will continue to make good stuff. I wonder whether or not if if these services start to represent, re, re, sorry, start to replicate the experience that we had at those multiplexes where the Jesus Dog movie plays next to 19 screens playing Force Awakens, whether some smaller shows or some smaller movies wind up going by the wayside. Now, I say that with like Amazon just underwrote five Steve McQueen movies. So like yep. it's, good stuff is still being made, but... It was interesting. Like I was going through Richard Brody's best movies of the year list from the New Yorker, and obviously a lot of the movies every year he writes about I've I have not heard of or have not seen. But do, do you know what the alternate name for Richard Brody's year in movies is? What Trolls World Tour? <laughs> but but I I will just say that I found it like this was the year that I was like oh. I don't even know how to see any of these movies. Like a bunch of them right. were festival films that haven't come out yet. Like Nomad Lands coming out this weekend, but. I, I, I do feel like there is a little bit of a gap between the stuff that's getting at least produced versus like its distribution right now. And the, the places that are most at risk are these smaller independent cinemas. Those are the lifeblood of independent movies. And those, that's the thing that I'm most concerned about. 
I would say here are three things if you want to put on your Jonas Era Pro industry viewer glasses. Here are the three things just to look for as this ripples through the industry. One is something we touched on the other week, which is if these movies are being made for home consumption, A, and B, primarily for home consumption, and B, if the technology advances as we see in The Mandalorian are um, replicatable, uh-huh. do we see the budgets for these movies going down? And do we see the uh, potentially the ambition for these movies going down? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Two, keeping on the theme of money, one of the biggest repercussions of this decision is Warner Brothers announces this, and now they're spending from now until New Year's and beyond calling everybody involved in these movies and renegotiating because a lot of these movies are built on- You don't think that already expect- happened? I, 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 I have it on medium authority that it's has maybe already started, but it's continuing. Okay. Um, that these movies are built on the assumption that there will be back-end pay. You know, I'll, sure. I'll be in your movie if I get this cut of the gross. We've talked about this before. this is how before. we're going to pay everyone. Yeah. That, that's potentially either cut dramatically or out the window. And that has happened in TV, you know, as we said also. Like, if you sell a show to Netflix, you're not getting those syndication dollars. So that TV is kind of even that out, although I... The Writers Guild is not thrilled with it, for example, how it netted out. So that's something to watch, too. That will definitely motivate whether they can get stars in these. Like, the the Downey deal that fueled the Marvel Universe was based, it was outrageous, but it was based on him basically taking a very successful bet on on the success of the movies going forward. Third thing to watch, somebody check on David Chase. Beautiful, sweet, curmudgeonly David Chase, creator of The Sopranos, who, as many people know, has spent his career making television good, bad, and truly sublime, a master of the form, who at every stage of his long, half-century-long career has had one consistent vision, and that is that he fucking loathes television and thinks it's a gutter medium and can't wait to get out of it. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in! (laughs) I have used that gift today. From Mario Puzo presents Francis Ford Coppola's Nat Last Try at the Godfather Part 3 Coda. I think that's what it's called. Um... His Sopranos movie the many is essentially, it's a Sopranos TV show now. And of course it's not because what vessel it's in, blah, blah, blah. But man, you think it must sting. And I don't say that with relish. I, I, I want him to be successful in any and all mediums. Um, Andy, but before we get into our interview with Scott Frank, and I do want to talk a, a bit about that, let's talk a, a little bit about trad HBO. HBO Linear. I mean, I guess it is HBO Max because all the episodes of Industry are upstreaming now. But I really did want to just mention uh, episode four of Industry, um, the Harper's Birthday episode, which aired, I guess, this past Monday. And uh, we're so excited. We're going to have Mickey and Conrad, the creators of the show, on a week from today. We'll record that early next week. But we're so excited to talk to them. And and Um, I think just for our listeners, we will probably keep it to what's aired linearly. Uh, yeah, for the people, you know, we're a populist yeah. podcast. Uh, I just wanted to, I just, this is one of my favorite episodes of television of the year, the Harper's birthday uh, episode. And um, part of it is because I think that, you know, they had been setting Harper up as this almost like, it's like they got young Michael Berry over here, just short in the housing market. And everybody's just like, what a genius. You can go just do, why don't you do this dinner? And the dedication to self-destructive behavior that they have on this mm-hmm. TV show, I, I think it runs the risk of not having any consequences. You know, and and this was the episode where I think that it turned the car away from the isn't this cool, the music's great, these people have 
indestructible nervous systems. They can go out on a Thursday night and take ketamine all night and then come back in and short water and, you know, just keep going about their day to day. And I just thought that this episode kind of jumped the, the the series up a level. What did you think? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I almost, I almost fired up the Twitter machine. It was just like, guys, I know I'm not a TV critic anymore, but sometimes I got to put the hat back on. And this is one of those cases. This is already more than 280 characters. Just to say, <laughs> industry is really fucking good and I love it. Yeah. That was my takeaway. It was a purely emotional reaction to the episode, which is my favorite kind of reaction. Not a lot of thinking necessary, even though it was an incredibly skillfully constructed and executed episode. I agree that it stepped it up because I think it did two things very, very well. One, it was just expertly constructed and paced to give it a breathless, the same kind of breathless feel that comes from the best movies, whether generally like, you know, either they are like Wall Street movies or they are heist movies, right? Like that that kind of tension, of escalating tension was just brilliantly built and it played against exactly what you're saying in a wonderful way, which is that we've come to expect the show to be a little bit frictionless and her to skate through. Mm -hmm. And so each time I got taken in, you know, I thought that this was going to be the get out of jail or get out of trouble free card until it wasn't. Like she figured it out, she figured it out and she doesn't, yeah. and, And by the time it was, uh, she did get out of it. It was in the midst of one of, if not my favorite, one of my favorite, if not my favorite scenes of television of the year. And we can work backwards from it because I do is absolutely have to talk to you about Robert's Eric? blood blood level, like just his <laughs> chemical. Like yes. we need to talk about this. We need to talk about Robert. Um, so it's this. It is. It's the it leads to the scene at the end of the episode. One of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene of television of the year. It's the cigarette at the end where uh, Eric, uh, played by Ken Lung and Harper, talk. And she attempts to kind of come clean to him. And he's just like, I don't have time for this. If I, mm-hmm. What does he say? If I wanted a story, I would. He has, he has a great quip. Yeah. Um, a week ago, we were talking about this. And I was saying, I don't think I've ever seen a relationship like this on television. In that it is a deeply uh, tough but respectful mentor relationship. And this was the moment when it elevated. And it didn't just elevate because the scene was so brilliantly written. Like, it must be super fun to be writing dialogue for Ken Lung, who's just like, I assume this this will resonate with our British fans. He just looks like a darts champion. I mean, he is delivering. Yeah. And it is thrilling to watch. And, and his little jags about the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the fat guy who was giving, telling him who was his mentor and all this stuff. But it ended up in such a profoundly interesting and tender place where basically he's like, they don't expect this from us. We Our odds of being here are tiny and we are going to get through this and we're going to succeed together in spite of everyone else. And he has this line that I think should be instantly quotable, which is what the two times you can come talk to me about a problem or when you've immediately when it's fucked or when you've unfucked it. Yeah. Yes. And it's when you've done it and when you've fixed it. But any, any time in between when it's still lingering as a fuck up is not, yeah. It, this is, it, it is a first ballot high five scene. And that it came at the end of an episode that was already this satisfying and thrilling. I mean, yeah, it, it jumped up. The yeah, whole thing and just I, jumped, I also think up. that the relationship between Harper and Eric is my favorite because it is not easily assigned to a paternal relationship or they have some burgeoning friendship that's going to really come in and count. I'm not giving anything away by saying like things get complicated between the two of them as the series goes on. And they get complicated in a way that is uh, 
very specific to the characters and very specific to the setting of the show and the and the environment of the show. I I think that we, and we actually talk a little bit about this with Scott about like sometimes the easiest choice to make is the one that ma- seems the most emotionally obvious. It would be emotionally obvious for Harper to find a father figure or something, you know, a, a familial figure among these this British finance industry of another American who's kind of helping her out. Um, that's not what's happening. You know, it's like a very complicated codependent um, relationship between the two of them that is really straddling the line between business and personal precisely because this job seems to make people straddle that line because it's so demanding and it's so punishing, but it's also, you know, fiscally so rewarding. And it is proving why it's such a good context for a drama because the expected behavior on the trading floor is so specific and so odd mm-hmm. and really would not work in a normal business place or a Starbucks line or anything. But it becomes the de facto operating system for these people so that when Harper behaves the way she behaves with the Scottish enforcer, you know, when, when she like makes him coffee and then tries to bribe him and then yells at him, he responds to it He's because like, she's speaking. Yeah. She said, well, he responds angrily, this is a workplace. But then what she does is remind him that this is this specific workplace. And this is how uh, basically alphas and betas keep reassessing themselves in right. the wild. And then we see that again in the the Robert and Yasmin relationship, which is funny and entertaining and sexy and flourishing and actually doesn't seem all that unhealthy. But maybe it just does seems that way in the context of what their daily lives are like, you know, mm-hmm. and then once Seb or whomever else in the, you know, um, Arctic poor, Monkeys touring poor, poor party poor Seb, finds just, out about it. Just in a ketamine cloud being like, hey. Hey, what's up? So uh, that, all of it is just clicking and it's fascinating. We got, I mean, bringing it all the way back to what I said at the beginning about how I was feeling this morning when I woke up after a glass of wine after 9 p.m. Not proud of this. Nothing, Chris, nothing in the world stresses me out more. And you you know, I, I won't watch The Witch. Like, I, I have a lot of stressors when it comes to entertainment. But nothing triggers me more than people having a lot to do when they're hungover. Now, the amount of drugs that they do seems excessive. It seems excessive. You know, and we'll, we'll have to ask Mickey and Conrad about their research methods. But... <laughs> I will say this. Yeah. They are capturing these people at a time in their life where it's right at that point where you realize like not everybody is doing the nights out like you are. You know right. what I mean? Like I think that as you kind of get a little bit older and like the consequences become a little bit greater in your professional life, you start to see some people like Rob in your life who are like fancy a bevy every night. Right. Well, that, it's to your point. Sorry to jump in, but that that's exactly what I was interested in too. And I imagine the next episodes will begin to unpack it. It's not just that everyone generationally is realizing, oh, there might be a limit to this. Oh, maybe it's just a Tuesday. It's that one person in particular seems biochemically engineered to be able to make mm-hmm. every Tuesday a Friday and want to, and will just keep chugging because as awful as Harper looks the next day, he looks fine. Yeah. He's chatting with everybody. Uh, he's, I think he's, I mean, I think that his whole thing is like, I only need to be awake for four hours before I can start again. Uh, but you go back to like that first scene of the entire show where they're having their entrance interviews, you know, to get into this program. Mm-hmm. And the characters are largely responding to the idea that it's a meritocratic mm-hmm. uh, 
business, that you're, you're evaluated on the results and that it doesn't really matter where you come from or, or how you do your work, but as long as the work is there. And I think that that's sort of been the theme of, of what we've been watching play out in these different ways is that uh, you can get away with murder, you know, if, if you don't fuck up, like at the end of the day, like Harper does. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing them to see how far they will push themselves. It's just a really, really exciting show to watch on a week-to-week basis or in a binge. And, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. I just, I'm loving it. I love watching it. I mean, I, I, when we talk to Conrad and Mickey, we have to talk about this, but I think that the mix of um, aesthetic ambition in the show and its complete uh, embrace of more base instincts, more primal instincts, whether they are capitalist or sexual or pharmaceutical, is really special. I yeah. think it's willing to to go places in both directions in ways that not many shows are. And it's so far anyway, it's striking a really strong balance. Couldn't be more curious about how HBO Max's play is working for people. Yeah. We said this before, like you could look at this and be like, oh, they're dumping it. Or you could look at it and be like, HBO Max is trying to figure out what it is and it's going to be the place that has Dune and the Suicide Squad. Yeah. And maybe it's also the place where HBO subscribers can get a little extra fix and keep going like Robin Harper do for shows that work well that way. And I think they're trying a lot of different things. Flight Attendant, they're putting up in little batches. Some shows they still have go week to week. It's obviously, industry, they tried to reel people in and then drop the rest of the season over a holiday weekend. And super anecdotally, the people that I speak to who have been watching industry, I think almost to a person just banged it out. Yeah. And I can only hope that data is reflected in their decision whether to go forward with it. So we'll talk to them next week. Let's get to our interview with Scott. This is one of my favorites that we've done in a really long time. Uh, Obviously, Scott Frank is behind one of the biggest shows of the year. Uh, I think a a fact that it comes as a huge surprise to him and to us uh, that a show about a chess prodigy has become this kind of sensation. It's still in Netflix's, I think it's in the top five. Um, I just I think I'm just blown away because we get to talk to somebody who's such a reservoir of experience in these different mm-hmm. kind like we always talk about how the in- entertainment industry and the storytelling industry for lack of a better term is changing but Scott Frank has actually lived through it and in the last 4 years has gone about kind of adapting his skill set to this new hybrid movie TV thing where he's making these limited miniseries he made Godless in 2017 and he's made Queen's Gambit now and he was nice enough to share a couple of the other things that he's working on with us, which I think uh, both of us, like our mouths were watering while he was telling us about his new projects. So you'll get to hear that towards the end of the talk, but what a, what a great chat with him. Yeah, I would say as you're listening, I mean, we, we love talking to him. We love his taste. We love his insight. We love the shows that he makes, but I, he gives an answer at one point about how, basically, like literally boots on the ground, how he made the show that is word for word, the best advice for show running I've ever heard. Uh, it it absolutely encapsulates everything that I wanted to do and that other people had told me, but he says it so beautifully and enthusiastically. So if you're interested in that part of the industry, listen up. And finally, the other cool thing about being Scott Frank, apparently, maybe this is just true of high-priced screenwriters across the board, is you'll just tell people what you're working on. <laughs> like We've been doing interviews for like eight years, and you ask someone what you're going to do next, and there's a coy wink and a smile while I'm developing this, and you know I'm hoping about this, but no details. Because yeah. at a certain point, like you don't want to jinx it, of course, but also I think people are like, well, if it doesn't get made, then I look foolish because someone said no to something that I wanted to say them to say yes to. Yeah. I think on some level, he's very chill and very kind and generous and self-effacing, but 
at a certain point, I feel like if you're Academy Award nominated, Scott Frank, maybe you DGAF a little bit. Sure. Because he was just naming names and telling us the plots of things that are <laughs> months away from being announced. So yeah. that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. So let's get into our conversation with Scott Frank and we'll be back on Monday. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Andy and I are delighted to welcome back to the Watch Podcast one of our favorite uh, screenwriters, one of our favorite current television showrunners, Scott Frank. One of our favorite directors now. And one of our favorite directors, straight up. And he is the co-creator. He is the writer and director of Queen's Gambit. Scott, Queen's Gambit, one of the success stories of this of 2020 of one of only like four or five success stories in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) There's like you, Joe Biden. You know, I think people are pretty psyched about the Chiefs. But that's about it, you know? That's Zoom shareholders. That's, that's, <laughs> that's all we right. got. Shareholders, that's about it. It's it's crazy. I don't, are you a football fan? Not anymore. Okay. I, I used to be, but not so much anymore. Too old. I really, really think I knew how successful Queen's Gambit was a couple, maybe like a month or so ago. I was watching Thursday Night Football. It was the Seahawks and the Cardinals. And they had already said, you know, people started talking about Queen's Gambit was a really big success on Netflix. And I think Andy and I, Approach that with a little bit of like baked in skepticism, but like appreciate that those factoids when they come across. But I really, really started to believe it when during this Thursday night football game, they did an entire segment about the Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray, and it was a Queen's Gambit bit. It was a Queen's Gambit. Everybody's watching this show. Kyler Murray is also quite a chess master when it comes to breaking down defenses. I was like, wait a second, this is Thursday night football. This is like, this is now crossing over into a whole other area. It's so bizarre. And I am, um, listen, I, I was shocked that Netflix wanted to make it. So I was just grateful that they were stupid enough to do so and to give me, you know, enough money to shoot it. And so when we finished, I was just so happy to have done it. 
And all of this is a wonderful and confusing icing on the cake. Um, really just <laughs> who would have thought we used to joke on set. I would be making jokes all the time. We're bringing the sexy back to checks <laughs> um, all the time. And, and to see people respond this way is, is unbelievable. You know, it's just it's crazy. We have to just say a personal congratulations too, because Scott, I, I think we may, may have hinted at this when the last time we spoke, but one of the sort of founding principles of this podcast is that Chris and I have always believed that obscure novels from the 1980s could eventually enthrall upwards of 60 million people. I mean, that is just what motivates us. It's what wakes us up in the morning. And somehow you have proved us right. And you just, as, as you just alluded, like Netflix isn't the way it used to be 10 years ago when the joke was, you know, they answer the phones and say, you're picked up to series. They have gotten more discerning. They're making different choices based on different obscure algorithms and metrics. How did you bamboozle them? How did you pitch the show and even end up uh, on set in Germany making jokes about sexy chess? It's really, I don't know, because they had passed on, I joke with them, you know, I would tease them all the time about how they passed on this and they passed on that. All these things I wanted to do after I did Godless with them, because I had a ball. They were really lovely to work with and and just as much on this. And I really wanted to work with them again. And so I kept bringing them things I wanted to do. And um, they kept passing. And then, so, um, by the way, the book is back on the bestseller list, too. This yeah. is not from 83, just, just to so great. take a second and take that in. That's really, anyway. So I was talking to, and this will, this answers your question. I was talking to Amanda Pete, who's, who's um, a friend of mine and she was and David Benioff's wife. As, David as, Benioff's wife. As she never house. has to mention, but he does. Their <laughs> house, he does. Yes. And um, she was, had written this amazing play about this young female tennis prodigy. Yeah. And she wanted me to read it and give, give her my worthless thoughts. And I said, you know, Amanda, there's the best book about a, a, a prodigy ever written is The Queen's Gambit. And I said, I know, because I tried to get it made over and over again for years. And I said, you should read it. And so she read it. And I think David read it, too. And they were both going, oh, my God, this is genius. This is brilliant. And I thought to myself, yeah, it still <laughs> is. And so I called Bill Horberg, who I tried to make it with before, the producer. And I said, you know. Godless was a much better miniseries than if I'd ever done it as a movie. And I tried so hard to make it as a movie. And again, everyone said, no, um, I know, but I hope someone else makes it. So uh, I said to Bill, what if we did this as a miniseries, as a limited series? And I said, we'll just get a quick pass from uh, Netflix and then we'll see if that's possible. And Cindy Holland loved it. She just loved the book. And that was that. They all did. And so I was shocked by how much they loved the book. And all the way through, they were so supportive. Blair Fetter, who's an executive there, used to say to me all the time, he would say, you know what? Everyone is making fun of me here at the company for my little chess show. (laughs) (laughs) They're all making fun of me here at the company for my little chess show. And he said, we love this show. While I was shooting, they were saying this. We really love this. And I don't know what it was that they felt. But I found um, since then, so many people love this book. So many people have been fans of this book. And as you know, so many people have tried to make it besides me over the years as film, you know, film over and over again, beginning with Bernardo Berlucci. Wow. Dude, were you a, 
Is Tevis a, a big guy for you? Like, were you a, are you a fan of of Color of Money? Did you get into him through the films? Uh, or I love Tevis. Okay, and I think he's a very underappreciated writer. Um, like Elmore Leonard, most of his characters are alcoholics, um, and writes a lot about dr- lovingly about drinking because he he stopped drinking, um, although he was drinking for a lot of his his career. But I tried to do the Man Who Fell to Earth as mm. something as a series, as a limited series. And I, there are, someone else is doing it. I failed. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I just couldn't, I couldn't make it relevant for now. Mockingbird is one of the greatest, most ripped off science fiction books ever, you know, about a robot who, who is, is borderline sentient. And that's been stolen over and over again. And Mockingbird is a beautiful novel. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's, it's great. And the Hustler is amazing. The Hustler and Queen's Gambit are very similar. They're, they're, relatives of one another. I mean, inevitably, when we get the opportunity to talk with you, we want to talk to you as much about your bibliography as your filmography um, and what's on your on your bookshelves. And and we have a bunch of questions, of course, about production. But since we're trending in that direction, I have to say, for people who don't realize it, in addition to all your other accomplished screenwriting work and your own novel, which we like quite a bit, Shaker, um, you have adapted, I'm sure I'm going to miss people, you've adapted Tevis, Elmore Leonard, James Lee Burke, Charles Williford, John D. McDonald, Lawrence Block. I mean, this is my shelf right, right over here. Um, could you speak to the unique role that you have as a fan of these authors, a fan of these books, and then also as the person who is both, you know, trying to be their, their champion, but also be an artist in your own right and put your own stamp on things and, you know, put something creative and beautiful into the world? Um, I love books. I love reading. I've learned more about writing from reading novels than I ever have from reading screenplays. And if you've read screenplays, you know, they're awful to read, mine included. Um, um, I don't even print them up because to go back and look at them (laughs) freaks me out. And, you know, I'm so grateful for computers now. I do a lot of originals, you know, but I also love adapting things because sometimes as I'm reading them, I really get infected by them and I see them and I want to, I want to kind of re-experience it over and over. It becomes my story as I've read it. It's weird. I kind of steal it as I'm, as I'm going. And um, I'm adapting a couple other things right now that we can talk about, but it, but it really, for me, it's, it's an, it's, it's strange. They just get under my skin in a way that I have to do it. And the ones that I've just tried to do for fun where I really didn't, speak to me in some way. I failed. I've tried and ended up having to, to, to give up at some point. Can you read I, I for- love the way you described that. Sorry, Chris. I just wanted to say, I love the way you described that, Scott, though. It, it, it sounded like Beth in her bed watching the pieces move on the ceiling <laughs> as you're challenged about how to fit the pieces and make the characters work. And, and that also speaks to the, I think, the brilliance of her adaptation because many different types of people, athletes, creative types can see themselves in the character. And, you know, it, it, even just you saying that is a little window into your way in to uh, a 30-year-old book like this. Yeah, well, it's because it's still, she's still a great character. And um, uh, in many ways, I feel like certain things that are that are period, it's, it's really fun to kind of go back. It's like if this, I don't think this would be as interesting if we did it today. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because take, even take away the fact that women are playing more chess now and competing at higher levels now. Even take that away, say we worked around that. There's just something about the tone of this that works in the 1950s and 1960s. There's just something so, for me, that's in, inseparable. It's just, in, it's just inseparable. And some novels are that way. 
I, I was going to ask the the period that you set it in. Were you drawing on stuff that you know was set during that time? Films from the '60s, because I think that there are certain, especially in the middle to like in the Vegas episode and the Mexico episode, that has this kind of almost. Hollywood dreamland kind of feel of like that those sort of I don't know I feel like I'm watching like picnic or something it's just like very romantic and very lush but I was almost wondering whether or not you were going back and thinking about it through the lens of of 60s 50s and 60s Hollywood or 50s and 60s history you know and whether like how you were sort of interfacing with the period a good question I mean I think or at least I thought I was thinking more about the period Um, for me, the tone of it, I always felt that the book was kind of a thriller. It isn't, but it felt like a thriller. And I always thought to do something where you're just waiting for something bad to happen and it doesn't was really interesting to me because I've written plenty of stories where it does and it happens even worse than you thought it was. And so I really thought that this was this was so interesting to do it where she's in these situations and actually people's better angels come through and that was a treat for me it was also great to write something where no one was shot raped or hung um you know so (laughs) shout out to godless yeah yeah (laughs) basically the opening scene of yeah Um, so it was really it was really you know a wonderful thing to just be able to get into her character and she was her own antagonist, which was, I, was a fun thing to sort out. I, I wanted to speak to that tone very specifically because I think that's what Chris and I were immediately struck by with the very first Bill Camp interaction where we have been conditioned by prestige entertainment to expect things to get darker because that's somehow more worthwhile. And one of the things that I admired most about this show was how deeply committed to ultimately positivity it was. this The way that Beth navigates this world and every person who appears to be an antagonist not, not only is revealed not to be an antagonist, but becomes a very open-hearted um, supporter, leading to that beautiful moment at the end when all of the men along the way are cheering for her. Um, can you speak to how important that backbone was to you in making this story and, and, and why that really does stand out? Um. It's funny because I amplified that. that. That was all, versions of all of that was certainly in the novel, but I felt the need to amplify it because going back to me stealing it and trying to own it for myself, I needed that. I was craving anytime I wanted, and there were some darker things in the novel. Um, you know, in the novel, Jolene practically molests her, gets into bed with her, and and they have this moment really strange. I didn't I didn't shoot that, but I shot, Jolene and Mr. Ferguson and Jolene and Beth got this. There was, there was other things that happened that were much darker in that orphanage. And I realized I was allergic to all of that for whatever reason. And I've gotten some grief. I've noticed some people are really responding to why aren't the men meaner to her, you know, mm-hmm. in the chest? Because I just felt like that's what you expect. And her experience wasn't about that. Gender was a part of it, and she got mad when people, you know, gave her attention for being a girl. But for me, this was about her own fear of being brilliant and what that was going to do to her. Her mother being this kind of flowers for Algernon kind of, you know, image for her, her future. Is she going to be crazy? Is she crazy? And people are constantly bringing up chess players who've gone crazy. So that was a much more interesting thing for me to to write about. And and being a a man 
I don't feel like I have the authority to really focus too much on on the more feminist side of it, even though that's certainly there. It's context, you know, everywhere. But it was not what I wanted to really dwell on. And I was focused on her being brilliant and how it isolated her. And going back to Little Man Tate, that's been one of my favorite subjects. And I felt like I got it a little wrong in Little Man Tate. And I felt like I was too young then when I wrote that. I, you know, I wrote it in college. Mm. And so this, I thought, oh, this is a better way to do it. And the, the, the addiction is really about not believing and self-destructive and, you know, self-destruction and all of those things. And that's what, that's what got me more than anything. And that threw off the tone. Once I kind of felt that, I knew, knew what the, what the tone was. It's so interesting that you mentioned thrillers as like a, as a guide for the, for the show, because I think in the sort of last third of it, it kind of coheres into more of a, almost like a sports film, you know, and yeah. <laughs> um, it, you actually do finally like this intellectual pursuit that I think a lot of people probably feel a little bit at arm's distance from because they just can't comprehend it. They can't, I personally, you know, all of my experience with math is actually like limited by my inability to kind of think in advanced ways or to think, you know, in these more complicated levels of geometry or calculus or anything like that. So chess is pretty foreign to me still, but I think at the end it becomes a sport, right? And it becomes a kind of, you know, they're going to complete the pass for the touchdown. It's the home run. It's Beth versus Borov. And did you, were you thinking actively about sports film tropes as you kind of rounded third there to use a sports film trope? Well, I love sports films. I'm a sucker for sports films. I really am. So yeah, I thought about it and, and it's interesting because Alan Scott, who is a, a British gentleman, Scottish gentleman who owned the rights to the book almost for since the beginning. And um, every time Bill and I had tried to make it as a movie, we would work with Alan and Alan is, is a writer in his own right, quite a good one. He used to write for write a lot of Nick Rogue's movies. He wrote Don't Look Now. And yeah. really, if he only wrote that, that would be fine. For yeah. <laughs> but he's written so many other things. And he when Heath Ledger was going to direct this, he had written a screenplay for Heath and it was going to be Heath Ledger's directorial debut. And interestingly enough, ironically or coincidentally, I'm not sure which, how to say it, but Heath died of a drug overdose before he got to make a movie about a drug addict. And um, and I think he actually would have made a really interesting movie. I was when I heard he was going to do it, I had already tried to do it and couldn't do it. And I felt like, OK, that was going to be really good. Um, but there was a script and I remember reading Alan's script for it. And it was because it was it was a, just a movie. It had to be more reductive than a limited series. It was a flat out sports movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't as many people in her life um, and it was a good one, but it was, is she going to win? Is she not going to win? Oh, she wins. And it was, it was laid out like that. And I realized that you can't get into anything that interests me in that short a period of time. So I'm glad I didn't make that because I think I would have had to have turned it into a straight up sports movie, even if I had written my own version of that. Right. So Beth has been living with you in your head for quite some time, as we realized from talking with you. You've read the book. You worked on this, uh, tried to scale the mountain a few times. Um, the combination of that plus you know, your long experience in, in and around Hollywood, you knew that even if Netflix gives you the green light, this lives or dies on, on your Beth. 
and you need to find the right person. Um, and <laughs> unanimously, you did. And we were lucky enough to talk to Anya a week or two ago, and she told us how she sprinted to her first meeting with you and could not stop raving about you know working with you and your collaboration and her just devotion to every aspect of this of this show. How did she get on your radar, and was it as magical as she described it to us? Well, just I'll just say that I've been doing this since I was 24, so 36. Fuck. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've had a lot of great experiences in my career, and I actually thought Godless was the best experience I'd ever had, and before that I'd had many. So to say that this was the best experience I've ever had says a lot, and it truly was on every level, actors, production, everything. It was just an absolute delight. And I feel lucky to have done it. So yeah, it was an amazing experience. And the set felt that way. Everything felt that way, even though I was terrified because, you know, I'm shooting 20 different chess games and thinking, okay, fuck, do I really have one more tournament? Oh my God. Um, But, (laughs) and yeah. So I'd seen The Witch, which I quite liked and thought she was amazing. And that movie hangs on her face without question. Then Ellen Lewis, who I work with, who's a who's, um, wonderful, amazing casting director, she said, you know, Vieira, and I've been thinking about Anya, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't landed on Anya yet, but I've been thinking about her. And she said, you should watch Thoroughbreds. And because Anya's in it and there's another actress who's tremendous too, who is, uh, who I like very much, Olivia Cook also was in that. And so I watched Thoroughbreds and I realized I'm not listening. I'm staring at Anya for the whole, every time she's on screen. Um, And then in the end, in the backyard, she's sitting in a giant chess set. (laughs) I don't know if you remember, but she sits in the backyard in sunglasses and it's one of those giant outdoor chess sets. So I realized that she could hold the movie because the show rather, because so much of it is going to be on her face. Because subsequent to that, I watched Ed Zwick's movie, Pawn Sacrifice. And those games between Spassky and Bobby Fischer were all on their faces. They mm-hmm. don't show a lot of the chessboard in that. And I realized, okay, so you can do that. But the difference between that movie and my show is there's all this emotional drama around the chess game. So if I could have if you understood going into each chess match, what the emotional stakes were, it didn't matter the ins and outs of the chess. That would be sort of extra. But if you knew what was, and I could be on her face, if you know, you see her reacting to losing or see her getting angry or whatever it is, but that's a very singular person who can do that with their face. And it's gotta be someone that you really want to stare at. And um, she walked into the restaurant in London and the first thing she said is I'm a hugger. <laughs> so, um, That's pre-COVID. We yeah, should not, say pre-COVID. And we've all uh, changed. And then she was so inside this character and so on fire with it in a delightful way. And she was a creature. She is Anya is a very singular, both in terms of how she moves, how she looks. And so I could see her sitting down across from somebody and somebody going, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> you know, she can be intimidating. So, you know, Godless has come up a couple of times. And it, 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 that was the last time we spoke was right back. I guess it was in 17. What do you think that you learned from making Godless that actually wound up going into Queen's Gambit? I was curious specifically about pacing, because this is 
while we've had miniseries, obviously, for, for almost as long as we've had television, it, this is a very specific kind of thing, this sort of seven-episode, eight-hour-about, you know, project. And I noticed that, you know, like, you kind of had... It seemed like you had your hand on the dial in terms of tempo and pacing throughout Queen's Gambit in a very particular way. And I, I loved Godless, but Godless, it seemed like you were like, Pull up a chair. It's going to be a while. We're going we're gonna to look at some horses now. You know, like... Uh, and we're going to watch a widescreen frame and a little horse come in on the right <laughs> and very slowly go across the whole frame. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what kind of lessons did you learn from Godless? Or I, Obviously, it's much different material, but I was curious whether you went back and watched Godless and were like, oh, I want to do something else here in this experience of watching it on this platform. Well, several things. That's a good question because ultimately I'm going to tell you I learned nothing. Um, <laughs> um, when I first started shooting Godless, Larry Kasdan, who'd made a couple of Westerns, said to me, Scott, just remember, everything takes longer on screen in a Western. Everything is slower in a Western. And so if you have a 45-page script, that's going to be 60 minutes. And I went, Larry, come on. I know. Sure. I know what I'm doing. And so... <laughs> You know, my first cut of my first episode was like three hours. <laughs> it was like a 59-page script or whatever. It was a three-hour cut because every beautiful shot that I stood behind the camera jacking off to, I kept. And so everything was there, and it was all slow, and the rhythm of it. And I thought, okay. So I do want a deliberate rhythm, but it ha you have to be careful. And that was a six-script show that I turned into seven episodes. Okay. Queen's Gambit. I said, okay, I cannot make that mistake again. This is chess. People are not going to want to spend a lot of chess. So one thing for sure, you have to figure out what is the least amount of chess you can get away with, first in the script, and then even less when you're actually shooting. So what is the absolute minimum? And people who don't know chess have to be able to be intrigued. And that's about pace. If you take forever in a chess game and people don't know what's going on, it's done. The channel, you're going to go watch Umbrella Academy. <laughs> so, so I thought, okay, so I have to figure that out this time. These scripts are going to be really tight. They're going to be 50-some pages, not 60 or 70-some pages the way they were in Godless. And, and fewer uh, horses. Few, yeah, just no generally fewer. Did. Yeah. It's going to be. And so. so well, there's the knights on the yeah, board. Yeah, right. But, but that's it. That's it. So I shot it. And you know, damn it. If it wasn't, it was six scripts that I turned into seven episodes again. Again. Interesting. Because I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. And the, the first episode was like two hours. I mean, there's so much that I cut out of that first episode. It ended later, actually. And God bless him, Bill Horberg, the producer, kept saying to me every time she dropped the pills and fell, man, that's a great ending for the episode. And I'd be, again, like, you know, Bill, <laughs> please, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing. And it would just drag over and over. And so all the way through it, it was, it was you know, trying to find this rhythm and, um, and sort of getting rid of certain subplots and getting rid of certain things that, that were there in order to keep it moving. Because I realized I would feel myself get stuck in the mud every time there was a chest turn. I would it, feel <laughs> it's so good. Thank you for your uh, transparency on this. It's so good to hear this because, um, you know, I, I think I, I said this earlier when we were discussing the show, 
watching the Queen's Gambit, it feels seamless. I was watching those first few episodes looking for the 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 cuts or the breaks or the maybe where the subplot used to be. And it's so great to know that everything, even the most seamless things, were at some point a total mess in your head or in the editor's head. And it was yes. expertly you pulled it off, I guess is what I wanted to say. Well, it, it, it was it was all seams before. <laughs> Amazing. And 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 I and and to that point, you're gonna be modest about this. I I can already tell. But since the pull quote from our conversation so far is already Scott Frank, the next Bertolucci, we'll <laughs> yeah. just we'll we'll, we'll 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 just leave that in. Um You mean, you mean Arnold Bertolucci. <laughs> yeah, he he's, he's the guy in the corner. The guy who made industrial films for DuPont. <laughs> That's right, in the Brilla Pasta <laughs> Empire. Yeah, that, I'm that guy, yeah. Um the you know, you you have been a very successful screenwriter for many years and in the last, you know, decade plus transitioned into directing and as Chris mentioned, Godless. And as we, as I said to you last time, I love your film, A Walk Among the Tombstones. I just think it's one of the best recent noirs on on screen. But this really felt exceptional to me in, in an almost entirely different way. And, and it, what I wanted to speak to is to use the word seamless again, the relationship as an auteur, which you are now, between your script and your direction. Because I think that a writer's sensibility often is, I'm going to put it all in the script because some lunatic's going to come and ruin it. You were the lunatic on the other end of it, directing it. And there was, at least in the final product, an austerity to the scripts that left such beautiful room for performance and visual storytelling. And I could go, and I have in other episodes where you weren't being generous with your time, on and on about the production design and the cinematography and the dolly shots every time Beth enters a building. Could you speak a little bit about that development, the development of that muscle in you? Because this is entirely a visual show in a way that was truly transporting, I think, for apparently millions of people. It's funny because while I was shooting it, I thought, God, Godless looked so much better than this. (laughs) (laughs) That's the horses. The horses. Yeah. So much more interesting in that one. Um, Or, man, I hope this works because, um, well, thank you. Um, some of that is just the the gift of the happy accident. Like, you know, I find that some of the best things when I'm writing come from some sort of happy accident. It takes you off in, in a different direction. It's also the result of a lot of trial and error. You know, it doesn't, the first cut, if I showed you the first cut, you know, it would be, it's a lot different, you know, so there's a lot that goes on. Um I would say a couple of things to to that um, because you know I'm I'm just trying to learn every time and I've I've been so lucky that I've had I had such great teachers you know Steven Soderbergh in particular who gave me the true gift of saying just remember simpler is better simpler is better and I also think simpler is more beautiful and I when I when I directed the lookout I remember. I had to know what I'm doing every second. It had to be perfect. Everything, you know, oh my God, it's not perfect. I'm going crazy. And then I realized there is the, what I would call the the gift of the pleasing shot. And there's a pleasing image. And then there's the perfect image. And some directors are going for the perfect image and they have the money and the tools and the time to get it. And I feel like perfect in that case is synonymous with dead. Becomes a dead image. It's all perfect and everything is balanced and, you know, but it's not, whereas a pleasing image, if something is a little off and it might bother someone's OCD or something, but it's still drawing you in, I, that became the goal for me. And I never have had the time 
or the money to to do you know too many takes or do you know spend a lot of time building you know Queen's Gambit was thirty eight million dollars all in all yeah. in for that which is crazy Godless was like seventy or something so I would say to that I what I learned is to if the more I planned the more I kind of had you know because I do have very specific ideas in terms of the palette you know, wardrobe, everything I am. I wouldn't say I'm a control freak that way. I would say I just know what I want. But I also know that when I have tremendous people, as I did on this and Godless and others, I can give a designer, you know, say, this is the palette, you know, and there was a photograph that we took by accident on a location scout that I said, this is what the whole thing should look like. And I'll send it to you so you can see it. Then if you have great people, they then kind of take it and interpret it. And they may inter- they may go off in the wrong direction. It may be inconsistent with what you're trying to do. But if they're the right people, if you cast everybody correctly, it's off- often and better than what you were thinking. So you're in this and you're and what you're constantly policing is the tone. Is this all the same movie? Is this all the same feel? Whatever it is, whether it's a visual thing, whether it's casting, whatever, whatever. You know, you're just always, you have the whole thing in your head. So you can, I can always feel when something's wrong. I can look at a dress or a shirt and go, that's not quite, that's not quite right. Um, and there are some times where I don't, I know what I want, but I don't know how to describe it. The pieces on the ceiling took forever for us to get there because I could not be as specific. I said, it's, I, and I told them at the beginning, I said, this is going to be a journey. We're going to go fishing together. And we did. And so I think, (laughs) Um, I was trying to help you um, and hurt me. I think that, I think that, that once you work with those people, it's what I call the one and one is three of it all, you know? Um, And then with casting, it's the same thing. You get these people who are tremendous and you, your job is to, to, you know, Sidney Pollack once said to me, I've only given one line reading in my entire career, told an actor how to say something. And that's when Meryl Streep asked me on Out of Africa. The only time I've ever done that. And so if you just tell people what to do, you're, 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 you know, you're not letting your racehorse run. And so all of these things that you're asking about, it's this, it's this environment that you create, this process that you create where you know what you want, and you have these kind of boundaries and limits. You also have, you know, limits in terms of time and in terms of money. And you work within that. And it grows into this thing. And it gets more and more specific as you're prepping. And as I would look at the wallpaper, I would look at clothing or I would look at wigs or whatever it was. You start to, and now you adjust to that. And the last thing I'll say, because it was really emblematic for the whole show and my own process too, was we had a chess summit. Hmm. This wonderful chess summit where we had the editor come to Berlin, the production designer, Uli Hanusch, who's a genius, who did Babylon Berlin, which is amazing. His whole team, props, everything. And we went over every chess tournament from the first time she's playing in the basement to the Kentucky tournament, to Mexico City, Ohio, whatever it was. And we looked at every chess piece, every chess board. We looked at photographs of the locations. We had our chess consultant, Bruce Pandolfini, to say, how many people would be at this? Would this be okay? Could we get away with it? If I, Because I had this weird idea of people on ladders for one of the chess tournaments on the display boards. I said, would they do that? He said, in Russia, they would, for sure. 
So, you know, we were talking about all this stuff all the way through. And then, you know, I would say something in the script that there's a sign outside now. They brought the board outside. And Uli would come up with, and his vehicle guy would go, what if we used an old truck? Hmm. And put it in the back of the truck. And it's amazing. It's a huge difference. But little things like that, one and one is three kinds of things happen every day, but you have to allow for it. And if I'm just trying to kind of control everything and get it perfect, I realize that doesn't work. But because I, I have a certain kind of taste and a certain point of view, but I also have people that are that are smarter than me. I, I always love this Ben Heck quote who said, um, Ben said that a movie is only as good as the least talented person associated with it. I strive to be that guy. <laughs> that That's really the- good. <laughs> Scott, man, thank you so much for being so generous with your time with us today. Andy, did you have anything else you wanted to hit him up with? I guess uh, the only question is what, what, what next? I mean, yeah. I, I assume Netflix sent you, I hope, they're, they're usually so coy with their numbers and then of course once they're good numbers Wait, then Andy, they say, we should well, do we should do like an 80s novel draft right now for scott like which does he do next like do we have the thomas mcguane revival coming next or like yeah do you like crumley <laughs> james crumley like, like i can't believe you just said that because david harbour just texted me an hour ago about the last good kiss i love oh james. my god this, love, that's me and andy's like one of our favorite novels james man. crumley so much even mexican tree duck which is which is nutsy cuckoo oh <laughs> we, we could do 40 minutes on the final country <laughs> yeah. and i was even going to bring him up earlier because the way you were speaking about chess i thought was so not only so wise in terms of writing advice but specifically something that chris and i say all the time about the mystery novels that we love or specifically the crumley novels which is i can't tell you a single thing that happens in any of them but i yeah. love them because of the vibe because of the characters uh, because yeah. of the emotion Montana. It's like Montana, Chagru, you yeah. know, and I, I mean, they're amazing. And Milo, the other character, they're awesome. And years and years ago, Bob Town and I were going to do, he had the rights to dancing there. I think. Wow. And we were going to do that together. And then I don't know what happened. I, I don't know. I was stupid is what happened. I don't <laughs> know. Um, but what I'm going to do next is actually not for me to direct. It's going to be for Johan Rank to direct. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back into the world of science fiction. There's a novel I loved in the 90s called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell about um, Jesuits who make first contact on a planet in Alpha Centauri. Hmm. They go, they finance the trip um, because they want to prove the existence of God and see God's creatures on another planet and it would be an amazing thing. And they're the only ones who can afford really to do it. And so they create this team, many of which are um, Jesuits themselves, (laughs) to go. And one's a linguist. And he's already having a crisis of faith at at this time. And so he goes and they get to this planet and they meet these people. And it restores his faith only for them to learn that. And they were sent there because the, the signal that they got was this gorgeous music that they responded to. And the people they realize they first see who are so peaceful and sweet and wonderful, they also realize they're primitive and could not have sent the signal. Uh-oh. <laughs> there are other people. And things don't quite go as planned. And um, the story is told 60 years in the future because the trip took on Earth time 30 years each way. And so, but it's only a year and a half. So he comes, he comes back and people he was a mentor to, this priest, he's the only survivor. They're now older than him by 30 years. But he comes back because the Vatican is doing an inquiry into what went wrong. 
and um, he's been deformed and maimed and you don't know what happened. He's being accused of murder and all kinds of things. And so it's, it's like Breaker Moran. And so it's this, this whole inquiry that describes what happened and what led up to it. It's beautiful. And Johan's going to be an amazing director for it. So I'm doing that. That's good. Then, was, your, was the appeal of that the idea of leaving Earth when Little Man Kate came out <laughs> and then returning right now? Yeah. The idea, exactly. Was <laughs> exactly that and the fact that, that um, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist or I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew, but I like to say I'm a culinary Jew. I love culinary Jew. <laughs> <laughs> well, was there, was there another thing that. you were working on too? Two other things. One I'm really excited about also that I will direct. Tom Fontana and I I got the rights through a couple wonderful producers to the character of Sam Spade. Oh, wow. And they, they had called me and they said, would you ever want to do something with it? And I said, I, I said, no, I don't know what to do with Sam Spade. It feels a little retro to me. I don't think I want to do anything. And then I hung up and the minute I hung up, I got an idea. I thought, wait, what if you do Sam Spade later in life when he's 60 years old and I thought, let's not have him be in San Francisco anymore. He's now an expat living in the south of France. I have no idea how this came to me. And so I thought, he's living in the south of France. He'd gone over there to help some woman who owned a, a winery with a problem, solve a problem. He'd gone over professionally, fallen in love with her. Um, she died of cancer. He inherited her winery. And now he's living in Bozul, France. Um, Greenwald's going to have a heart attack right now. It's 1963. It's 1963, the end of the Algerian war. So all these guys are coming home into the country and there's all this kind of Muslim sort of socio-political stuff happening. And he's in this little town and the daughter of Sam Spade and Bridget O'Shaughnessy, he has in a convent living nearby. And he doesn't even know if it's his daughter or not. And um, he had brought her there. It's very complicated. But basically, his past comes to this little, finds him in this little town in the south of France. And we're doing six episodes. Clive Owen is going to play Sam Spade. <laughs> and, Scott, um, I, I can't <laughs> tell you which is a bigger dream of mine, to see uh, you and Clive Owen do Sam Spade or personally to live in France yeah. at a winery. Okay, so <laughs> that you have combined the two great... visit set so we, we will not, do a live podcast yeah do a live podcast i think today. andy kaya and i will relocate to the south of france you do a live podcast of how it's going scott scott is once more lying underneath the table position. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do that and tom and i wrote a pilot and we're going to write because one day over lunch i said to tom you know who's my neighbor here in new york i said would you, would you ever be interested in doing something like this and we just did it. We've, we've been working on it and it's been a real treat. So there's that. Then the last thing I'm going to do, which is another book I've been dying to do, which will take me back to Berlin, is Nabokov's Laughter in the Dark. And I'm going to do it with Anya. It's, it's a great, it's a great book. It's a great book. And um, it's going to be kind of a Valentine to movies because it's going to, I'm going to do it as a film noir. And the book is more about art and paintings. I'm going to make it more of a movie within a movie. And it's a really nasty, wonderful little thriller. And I'll probably, I hopefully will do with all the folks I did, Queen's Gambit. That's so amazing. That's, that's, and I'm also writing a sequel to Shaker. I'm about 
50 pages in. So if I get to 100, I know I'll finish. <laughs> How much fun are you having right now? Yeah, seriously. No wonder you don't watch football. You're too busy making all this stuff we want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy watching Selling Sunset. <laughs> oh man scott this was amazing man uh, we hope to have you back on again sometime anytime uh, you guys are great anytime anytime i would love to what a treat scott frank thank you so much for joining the watch pod and everybody if you haven't already obviously watch queen's gambit and we'll be talking about scott frank's work apparently for the next 10 years because oh, i want to watch all these shows immediately <laughs> thank you scott thanks, thanks scott thanks you guys what a, what a blast <laughs>